The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Spirit Matters podcast, where we host conversations with a diverse range of spiritual teachers and scholars and otherwise individuals who can help you along your own path. Um, If you're tuning in for the first time, please go to mindbodyspirit.fm and uh, look at the archive of interviews we've done so far. You'll find a lot of interesting people to, uh, to listen to. And um, if you're old fans of the podcast, you may remember that I co-hosted with Dennis Ramundi for several years, and that archive also still exists. It's at spiritmatterstalk.com. Today, we have a guest that uh, many of you are familiar with, Neil Donald Walsh is the best-selling author of the Conversations with God series, nine books in all, seven of which made the New York Times bestseller list, and the first one, the original, published in 1995, remained on that list for more than 130 weeks. In all, uh, Neil has written 40 books on contemporary spirituality and its practical application in everyday life. The books have been translated into 37 languages and have been read by millions of people around the world. The latest book, which we'll talk about, is God Talk, Experiences of Humanities Connections with a Higher Power. Welcome, Neil. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, Phil. How may I serve you? Well, we always begin our interviews with the guest's sort of origin story. What, uh, for, for those who are not familiar with your story, what was your spiritual history or background, the influences uh, prior to the books and uh, that were sort of the uh, the background for your point of view? Well, I'm not sure it would be the background from my currently held point of view, mm. but it certainly did set the stage for my explorations that developed into my current point of view. Mm-hmm. I was I was born uh, into a Catholic family, uh, and I went to a Catholic parochial school. And I must say, I loved it. I I felt really safe there, and I was taught by you know sisters, uh, nuns, who were, from my experience, wonderful teachers. And so I really uh, really enjoyed my my upbringing in that faith tradition. But as I got a little older, Phil. In my early teens, 13, 14, 15, and so forth, I began to I began to question some of the things that I was being told in my Catholic tradition. Actually, my very first question came up for me when I was a great deal younger, when I was nine years old, when I was told in my third grade class 
the priest would come in, our, our parish priest would come in once a week and teach what's called catechism, mm -hmm. which are the doctrines and the dogmas of the Catholic Church. And he's teaching it, you know, he's a good, good, good guy. He was teaching it at a, at a third grade level. So he was trying to explain to us some very sophisticated concepts at a third grade level, which couldn't have been easy. And yeah. this particular week, he's talking about the difference between mortal sin and venial sin, which are two categories of sin that are, uh, that are, you know, described and defined in Catholic dogma. A mortal sin, the priest tells us, is a sin that if you die with that sin on your soul, that is, if you haven't gone to confession and confessed it and been given absolution and said your penance, if you die with that sin on your soul, you go straight to hell. No questions asked. Yeah. If it's a venial sin, not, not quite such a serious offense, then you go to a place called purgatory, which was, obviously, it was explained to me that purgatory was very much like hell, only it's not forever. You just serve kind of a penance there, and then uh, when the justice system in heaven decides that you've served enough time for what you did that was wrong, you get to be released from purgatory and you go to heaven. So I, I raised my nine-year-old hand, Phil, and I said to the priest, Father, can you tell me, you know, can you give me an example of what a mortal sin is? I'm sure he's going to say, well, murder, or, you know, stealing someone's life savings, or, you know, something really serious. He said, oh, sure. Now, I realize he's trying to teach a classroom of nine-year-olds, but he said, missing mass on Sunday oh, God. is a mortal sin. And um, even at the age of nine, my, my eyes crossed. I thought, not going to church one Sunday in your life? Because I went to church every Sunday with my parents and so mm -hmm. forth. But, you know, uh, but that, as it happened, of course, it would happen that way. That particular Sunday, I did miss Mass. I hardly ever did. But it was our, our playground World Series, you know, the, the citywide softball championship. And I was, One has one's priorities. Hello. And, I, <laughs> and I'm playing right field. And the, and the guys on the team are saying, Neil, you, you can't miss the game. Right. The game starts at 11. Uh, the game starts at 10. Church started at 11. So I thought, So I, I thought. well, I, I just won't go to Mass that, that week. Now the priest is telling me three days later, I'm going to hell if I die with that sin unconfessed on my soul. And in our parish, they, had only, they only had confession once a week, Saturday afternoon, from 1 o'clock till 4. And what so if I he had, died before Saturday? Well, that was the whole point that I'm getting to. <laughs> right. So now, now I'm sitting there at the age of nine, quaking in my boots. What if I don't make it to Saturday and get to confess my horrible sin of missing church one Sunday in my life without a good excuse? The priest did explain, if you have a good excuse, if you're caring for a sick parent or if you're an adult and you have to work, fair enough. But if you're just going to go out to play a game of golf or you know just decide not to go for no good reason, that's a mortal sin. So now at the age of nine, my mind is trying to wrap itself around a God who would say, miss church one week and you're going to hell. Yeah. Unless you confess your sin in time before you die. So I'm saying my nighttime prayers with trembling voice. I'm not making a joke of this is really happening. I'm, I can imagine. At the age of nine, I'm praying at night. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Please, God, don't send me to hell. I'll never miss Mass again, I promise. Oh, boy. And my nine-year-old mind is thinking, is this how God fills the pews? Mm -hmm. He fills the pews with fear? That if you disobey and, and even miss the church service one Sunday? You're going to hell unless you confess. And, well, as I grew older into my young teenage years, 12, 13, 14, 15, I started questioning other doc doctrines and dogmas of the Catholic Church as well. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. And I did throughout my life not just questioning Catholic dogma, but the doctrines of many religions, because I started exploring Judaism. I looked a bit at... Uh, the Muslim faith, 
I, I began to look at Hindu. I was, you know, just the curiosity of a 16 or 17 year old. As mm-hmm. I moved into, as I moved toward my 20s, I started, you know, reading books like, like a book by Yogananda, who no one has ever heard of. And no one ever reads a book by Yogananda. Well, and of course, that's why I mentioned it. <laughs> okay. I'm just joking, I'm Joshy, because okay. we should explain to our audience that he's got a book. <laughs> Is this a video, a podcast, or audio only? Uh, the audience will only hear the audio. Okay, so then for those of you who don't see the video, <laughs> I'm saying what I said because he's got a book by Yogananda over his shoulder. Actually, the book over my shoulder is it's my about... biography of Yogananda. Oh, okay. So you actually wrote a biography of <laughs> yes, Yogananda. Yes, oh, my yes. gosh. <laughs> so here I am going into my 20s, and I got all kinds of questions about all kinds of faith traditions. Then I find out that there are 4,000 religions on the face of the earth, mm. not since not since time began, currently being practiced right mm. now. 4,223 faith traditions <laughs> being practiced on the earth as of today. So now all this is part of my talk about background leading up to my present understanding. Got it. Um, and then, then I stepped into my conversations with God experience, and everything changed. A question, very important question. Nine-year-old Neil plays in the ball game on Sunday. The opportunity for confession is the next Saturday. Did you go to confession? And did you win the ball game? <laughs> we did win the game. I'd love to be able to lie about it and say I hit a home run that won the right. game in the bottom of the ninth, but I'm not going to. I struck out <laughs> two out of three times at bat. And I think I hit a, a, a wee, measly single my third time at bat. But we did win the game by one run. And I, of course, I did go to confession. You got, you know, did, you got to believe. I went to confession really tearfully. Mm. I'm kneeling in the confessional, practically crying. Father, forgive me. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was a week ago. You went to confession, by the way, in those days, once a week. Mm-hmm. What does a nine-year-old have to confess? <laughs> Missing mass. <laughs> yeah, in this case, and a mortal sin. twice. Yes. <laughs> In this case, a mortal <laughs> sin. Well, and, you know, or what, what else can a nine-year-old confess? What, what is the priest hearing every week? I talk back to my mommy. You know, I, I, I push the dog or whatever. You know, what, what does a nine-year-old do that's worth confessing? But anyway. Prior to writing Conversations with God, when I looked at your uh, biography online, you went through a very, very trying time. From what I read, to put it mildly, yeah, to put it mildly, um, how did that factor in to your spiritual evolution, to your uh, own uh, growth and progress along the way? Well, it factored in because it motivated me. Ah. It simply motivated me to say to God, you know, it, what what's going on? What is the point of all this? I was raised to believe that there is a higher power, and I, I pretty much held the thought that there must be something more going on here than meets the eye. So there probably is some kind of higher power. But when I went through these difficult times in my life, I finally sat down in frustration one morning at 423 in the morning and wrote a very angry letter to God. Mm. What do you want? What do you want from me? I remember writing, what does it take to make life work? And I and I, I wrote, what have I done to deserve a life of such continuing struggle? And then the final final sentence I wrote in my little angry letter, tell me the rules. I said, hmm. I'll play, I'll play this game. Just give me the rules. And after you tell me the rules, don't change them. Because I kept on feeling that every six months the rules were changing. Hmm. You know. How long after that letter did uh, you have the experience that led to conversations with God? Immediately. Immediately. In that moment. In that moment. Got it. As, as, as I finished that little four-question letter, I heard a voice in, in my mind saying, Neil, 
do you really want answers to all of these questions? Or are you just venting? Mm. And I can recall, I remember sitting there on the couch guffawing. I said, you think I'm venting? You think? I mm. said, if you've got answers, I'm sure as hell I don't know what they are. <laughs> and God said to me, you are sure as hell about a lot of things. But wouldn't you rather be sure as heaven? Mm. And my reaction, I wrote it down, was, what's that supposed to be? And God said, keep writing. Mm. And I'll, I'll answer your questions. And she answered the questions that I had asked, the questions that were on that tablet, and a great many other questions that the answers I was given brought up for me. And before I knew it, I was involved in a Q&A, kind of an informal question and answer, question and answer dialogue on paper. I'm writing down my questions and getting the answers, writing down my questions and getting answers, most of which were directly contradictory to what I had been taught as a child. I want to ask about that. Um, but I, I want to maybe move forward in time a little bit because um, your book became such a phenomenon. And... Uh, I'm curious, as somebody who writes books, when the book came out and suddenly uh, it was, you know, sales were going through the roof, you were in the public eye, how surprised were you? You could have knocked me over with a feather. Yeah. But let, let me explain to you how the surprise came upon me. I wasn't really following the sales of the books, or I, I wasn't I wasn't interested. I, I I I didn't even write it as a book. My conversations with God did not start as a book. I didn't have it in my head that that. So I wasn't trying to write a book. I was having a very personal, one-on-one, -on -one sacred experience that I never thought, frankly, anyone would ever hear about. It was going to be a private encounter between me and the God of my understanding. Except that in the first dialogue, about one-third of the way what became book one, I was told, you will make of this one day a book, mm -hmm. and you will cause it to be accessed by many people. And I remember thinking, Phil, now I got you. Now I got you. Now we're going to find out whether this is just my imagination, whether I'm making this all up, a flight of fancy, or whether it's really true, because I'm pretty clear, no publisher, I mean, I could self-publish, but no legitimate publisher is going to put out a book by a guy who says he's talking to God. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine him going out to the workroom floor saying to his editors, hold everything, stop the presses. I got a guy here who's talking to God. <laughs> It's not going to happen. And I knew it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't a snowball's chance in hell. So I sent the manuscript. I, I hired a sonographer, give her in those days about 50 or 60 bucks. And she took my handwritten yellow legal pads full of questions and answers, typed them out. I sent the typewritten manuscript to a small publisher on the, to a, 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 ser a series of, I think it was like three or five three or four publishers, uh, not not major ones like Putnam or Random House, but I, mm -hmm. I found some independent publishers, and I sent them off. By golly, if one of those independent publishers, Hampton Rose, didn't call me a week and a half later, saying, we want to put this book out. I said, you're kidding me. You're going to actually publish it? <laughs> They said, yeah, it's a great work. We want to publish it. It's a great work of fiction. Mm. I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We're not publishing it. It's not a work of fiction. It actually happened. You think I made this up? If you think I made it up, our conversation is over. And the publisher was quiet for a minute. Then he said, okay, you're, you're claiming this actually occurred in real life? I said, yes. He said, whoa. And what are you wanting to call this book. I said, we're going to call it Conversations with God. 
That's exactly what it what it is. He said, we need to change the title. No one's going to buy it. It's going to be a pushback. No one's going to buy a book with a title like that. But it's presumptuous. It's incredibly presumptuous. I said, no, we're not changing the title, and we're not calling it fiction. It's a nonfiction book called Conversations with God, and if you're not interested in publishing it, then don't publish it. He said, wow, most first-time authors who get an author, author from us to publish it react a little differently than you're reacting. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, sorry, but this is my feeling. Either publish it under that title as a nonfiction book or our discussion is over. He said, okay, okay. He says, not going to sell a whole lot of copies, but we'll put it out because we like we like what we're reading here. We'll put it out. We might sell, you know, five or six hundred copies, maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred copies. It might sell. Who knows? Well, he was right. It didn't sell five or six hundred copies. <laughs> it sold five million. One of the great surprise stories in publishing history, actually. In 37 languages, yeah. translated into 37 languages. Now, before we get into the, the substance of the... Of well, the, I'm sorry. Please yeah. forgive me, Phil, but I never really answered the question about oh, okay. how, surprised, how, how how I got to be surprised. Yeah, the, right. the, the book The book came out, and I never really tracked it. I wasn't calling the publisher every other week to see how it was doing. I wasn't following the online sources I could follow. I, I just let it go. I thought, you know what? Just... Let it go. I was continuing to have the conversation. The, the experience was ongoing. But I thought, you know, I sent him this. And then one day, oh, about maybe four months after the book first came out, uh, I got a knock on my door. It was a florist who said I had some flowers to deliver to Mr. Walsh. I said, that would be me. He said, okay, here they are. So he gives me the flowers and a little, small little present. He's a little gift that was sent to us to hand to you. I said, okay. Thank you very much. My wife said, who is this, a girlfriend? I said, no, I don't know who it is. Maybe maybe somebody read the book and they liked it. Let's see who, who it is. So I opened the package, and it's a wooden plaque with a brass plate, plate attached to the wooden plaque. And the brass plate has engraved on it in commemoration of one million sales. <laughs> Phil, this is four months into the book's release. Not four years, four Amazing. months. Now, that's when I knew, that's when you asked me how I felt. I was so shocked. You could have knocked me over with a feather. I I'm turned sure. to my wife. I turned to my wife and I said, a million copies? I've sold a book came out in September? I mean, I'm sorry, the, the book came out in uh, uh, May? And it's now August or September, and the book has sold five million that, copies. And that's without uh, the publicity machine of a large publisher. That's right. Amazing. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And then a large publisher did call the small publisher, and they sure. wanted to, of course, they wanted to buy the title. Yeah. And and the small publisher sold them the title. It was it was purchased by Penguin Putnam. Yeah. Well, I'm going to call Penguin, uh, now Penguin Random House, and find out why mine hasn't yet sold a million copies. Or I'll ask God. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, the, the original reaction, this must be fiction. I'm sure that after the book was famous and you were famous, that there was backlash. I'm sure for everybody who revered you and were grateful for your book. There were people who called you a charlatan and an opportunist and that you made it all up. And it's really uh, either he's deluded thinking he's speaking with God or um, he made it up to sell books. Am I correct that you had that those kind of reactions? You think? <laughs> I'm sure. The answer is yes. How did you deal with it? And how do you answer the questions? Um, all right. First, how did you deal with it? Well, first of all, I balanced it off with the enormous amount of response I was getting from people yeah. who really appreciated it. So we're talking 10 letters to one. 
if I got 10 letters or 10 emails, and I did, I did get a lot of letters because my address, my post office box was on, uh, in, in the book. So I'd go to my post office box and the, the postmaster actually had to say to me, could you get a larger box? Would you be uh-huh. willing to rent rent a commercial box? Because we can't get the mail for you. in. Because I would open my small little po- uh, post office box and the mail would fall out on the floor. I'm not talking about six or, six or eight letters, 20 or 30 letters every time I went to the post office. So the guy said, you're getting like 100 letters a week. What the hell are you doing? I said, well, I guess I guess people have, you know, wanted to let me know what they felt about the book. Some of those letters were very negative, as you said. You're mm-hmm. a charlatan. How dare you? Or worse yet, you're a blasphemer. Mm-hmm. You're doing mm-hmm. the devil's work. Mm-hmm. You're an instrument of the devil. But I got to say that of every 10 letters, probably eight or nine were positive, And maybe one was negative. And I remember one letter that I got from a, from a, a minister, a Christian minister uh, in uh, Massachusetts. And he said, Mr. Walsh, I can't say that I agree with all of the conclusions and much of what's been said in your book, but I'll give you this much credit. You have created more of a conversation about God in our congregation than we've had in many, many years. People are coming in here wanting to talk about this book with me and wanting to know what I as a minister think about it. So if nothing else, you have started a conversation about God. And if that isn't the purpose of all good art form, mm. then he said, I don't, I don't know what is. Mm. Great. And I, I, I kept that letter. I freight that particular letter signed by this reverend sub minister in Massachusetts. I actually framed it and put mm. it in my, in my den because I, because it really buoyed my feeling yeah. and got me through. Now, how did I respond to the people who who sent me negative messages, emails, or phone calls, or letters, uh, or even interviewers who are interviewing me from a negative point of view? I would say to them, I can understand how you could feel that way. I totally understand how you could feel that way. All I can share with you is that it was my experience that I had a conversation with the divine, and furthermore, it's my experience that all of us are having conversations with God. We're simply calling it something else. A psychic hit or an epiphany or a moment of great insight. Mm-hmm. Some ladies call it women's intuition. Mm-hmm. And we, we give it whatever name we can give it because we don't dare say, you know, God is talking to me. But we're all receiving information from the divine and we're just simply calling it something else. But I do understand how you could think that I'm making it all up. And I'm sorry if you think I'm a charlatan. At least let's go this far. I'm not a charlatan in that I did not do this deliberately to try to fool anybody. Now, whether you don't believe I actually had the conversation, that's something else. Mm-hmm, but let's mm-hmm. let's see if we can agree that I'm not a shyster. Very good. And normally after my conversations, even the most antagonistic people would say, okay, fair enough. That's good. Good for you. Um, you've touched on a few points that I was actually going to raise. And one of them, well, but before I do, I want to get back to the term God. Because a lot of people uh, who have the kind of experiences you're talking about uh, shy away from the G word because of its connotations, and they'll say, you know, I had a deep uh, intuition from the divine, or I had uh, uh, the universe is telling me something, or they'll use different euphemisms for the word God. So the question arises then what you mean by God, and I was struck earlier in our conversations where you refer to God as she. So my question is, in as you understand God, does God have form? Is God uh, a personal God? Is God formless? Is it transcendent? Is it all of the above? How does God manifest for you and in your experience for other people? It's all of the above in my experience that uh, God is formless. My understanding is that God is the essential essence or the pure energy of life itself. I hate to be so naive or so simplistic, but it's the pure energy of life itself that I call pure love. Mm-hmm. 
but I, I it, it is um, more than just an unconscious energy. It is a an energy that's self conscious. That it is that is it is in my understanding it's self aware, and it can take any form it wishes and does in fact take multiple forms. It can take the form of a man of a woman. It can take the form of a an entity on another planet that's totally different from the form that we are currently inhabiting. It can take the form of the planets themselves and of everything. So my experience of God and uh, is that trying to define or describe God is a huge, huge mistake. God says, I'm everything. I'm all that is. All that is, all that ever was, and all that ever will be. Whatever you're looking at, I'm there. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24 through 26, at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. And in that context, um, the what you call conversation, when people hear the word conversation and hear the story you just told, uh, essentially you were taking dictation in a sense. Um, that, uh, that suggests a verbal communication. Words were coming to you, sentences were coming to you. My sense is that that's not the only form that the communication occurs. Can you speak to the form? And and one of the reasons I, I raise it is you say God is always talking to us in a sense. When people hear that, do they expect to hear fully formed sentences? And is that a mistake to anticipate that? I can't tell you what they expect to hear because I was not in their mind. So I don't know. I can't answer that question. But I can tell them um, my own experience is, and it's written right in the conversations. Anyone who's read the conversations with God books will tell you that it says repeatedly in the books themselves. I, I, I communicate with everyone all the time in a hundred different ways across a thousand lifetimes. It could be words. The lyrics of the next song you hear on the radio, the chance utterance of someone on the street, the, the the message you find on the billboard as you're turning the corner on the highway that answers the very thing that's been on your mind for the past two and a half weeks. Uh, so, Or even something as interesting as a fragrance. Mm. I bring that up because I actually had that experience. Mm. I was in the men's, men's department of a, of a well-known department store a few years ago, many many years ago now, but but uh, and I was in there to buy a new sports coat, and suddenly I'm I'm smelling gardenia, so I look all around. There's nobody around. There's, there are no ladies. I'm in the men's department, and at that moment there wasn't even a lady buying something for her husband. I'm the only one in the department, except for the salespeople, and they were all men. I'm thinking, where am I? Where am I smelling? Is is Ah, there must be the perfume counter close by. But I looked around. No, no, the perfume counter actually was on a different floor, on a separate whole floor of this department store. I thought, where's the where's the gardenia coming from? And I couldn't pin down where that fragrance was coming from and why it was staying with me. But I did know this. It was my mother's signature fragrance. Ah. It was the perfume that she wore all of her life. And of course, I smelled it a thousand times in my lifetime at home. So when I got home, I picked up the phone. I thought, I don't know why, but I got to call mom. Why would I be smelling fragrance in the men's department of the department store? Mm -hmm. So I picked up the phone and I called my mother, who was then elderly. And I had a very important and meaningful conversation uh, with her. Interesting. So I'm so glad that, you know, I had that experience. Now, was that a 
a form of communication from the divine? I think so. I think, and when I asked God about stuff like that, I said, you know, do, do you actually do that kind of stuff? God said, sweetheart, I will stop at nothing <laughs> to get a message across to you that might be of value and of benefit to you. So this raises the question, if communication from the divine or messages from the divine uh, can come in so, an infinite number of forms and uh, means, how does one know in, amidst all the stimulation we have through our senses and in the mind, how do we know what's a message and what's not? Or is everything a message? Of course, I asked the same question in the first 10 pages of book one, in the first 10 out of 3,000 pages in Conversations with God Dialogues, I asked the same question. How do I know this is a message from you? Mm -hmm. And God said, discernment, son, discernment. Very good. My messages will always be messages of freedom, joy, and love. If there's anything other than freedom, joy, and love in the message, it's not from me. It's from your imagination. It's from some other source, it's from some other place, but it's not from me. What occurs to me when I hear that is, what about warnings? Those are messages. Are you, uh, yeah, one gets sort that's of... A, that's a message of love. That's what I was hoping you'd say, and I anticipated you would say, as opposed to uh, a message of fear. Precisely. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you uh, became very well known for uh, including in your books and that uh, as a message from God was You've Got Me All Wrong. I actually wrote a book by that title. Uh, tell us about I'm that and how you were, you said earlier you were really surprised by some of the content that it ran counter to your assumptions. I assume that's what was meant by you've got me all wrong. Yes. Well, I was on the Today I was on the Today Show and Matt Lauer was interviewing me on the Today Show. And yeah, you know, at the end of the interview, he's asking me some of the same questions you're asking. Good, good questions, good solid questions. But at the end of the interview, he says, Well, Neil, um, you claim to be a person who had a conversation with God. So I gotta ask you this. He said, What's God's what's God's most important message? What's the most important message God wants to send to the world? And he said, he, and of course, they always, <laughs> they always wait until the last minute to ask the most important question. Matt looks at me and says, we got about 30 seconds if you could put it into one. <laughs> really, this is a true story. Yeah, he I'm said, sure. if you could put it into, into one paragraph, that would be helpful. And I'm sitting there on national television on the Today Show, and I'm thinking, you son of a gun. You give me 30 <laughs> seconds to give you the gospel, you know, and then it came to me. My mind just heard it. It heard it in my head. I went, I looked at Matt and I said, Matt, I can give you, I don't need a paragraph. I can give it to you in five words. Now, Matt Lauer looks at his camera and he says, with a slight tone of skepticism in his voice, all right, ladies and gentlemen, you heard the man. Now hear from Neil Donald Walsh, who claims to be talking to God, God's message to the world in five words. Neil? And the guy behind the camera points to me. You're on. Yeah, and I realize I'm talking to an international audience watching NBC's Today Show. And I said, God's message to the world in five words. You've got me all wrong. <laughs> How'd they react? Matt's eyebrows went up. He just went, he, I know he was expecting me to say, love everybody or be yeah, kind yeah, yeah. to people or be forgiving or whatever, some kind of aphorism mm. and you got me all wrong was not what he expected to hear he, his eyebrows raised and he went all right ladies and gentlemen do you really believe that neil and i said matt either it's true or it's false if it's false we, our discussion is over if it's true the major discussion of the world has just begun 
Because if we've got God all wrong, then what would be correct? What would be accurate? That so would we, have launched a lot of conversation. Yeah. And we, I, I, so I asked, I said, let, let me ask this question to end our program, Matt. He said, quickly, we've got 10 seconds. I said, okay, ask your audience, is it possible, just possible, that there's something we don't fully understand here about God and about life and about who we are, the understanding of which would change everything? Matt, Matt turns to the camera. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today, Neil Donald Walsh. <laughs> Be back after this word from our sponsor. And he cuts to a commercial. He looks at me and he goes, not bad, kid. Oh, good. He, you were made for showbiz, he was thinking. Um, well, you know, I spent I, I spent 25 years in broadcasting. Prior to the books, yes. Yes, so be, being on radio and television was not new to me. That comes in handy for an author. I can I know from firsthand experience. So, Neil, when what are the implications of you've got me all wrong? And what were what were some of the uh, results or outcomes from your having said that on on national television? How when people ask you what is it we get wrong about God? How do you answer that? Just about everything. What we get wrong is just about everything from the ground up, who and what God is, what we imagine that God wants, what we think that God does, if anything, if God doesn't get what God wants, how we could use the gifts that God has given us, do we even understand all the gifts that we have received, and dare we even take them in in a way that allows us to utilize them? You know, just about everything that we understand about God, which is why I wrote a book called The God Solution, in which I offered a new definition of God. Mm. I said in that book, let's redefine God. Let's let's come up with a definition that all the world's religions can agree on. I said, to, I said in that book, isn't it interesting that out of 4,000 plus religions, we cannot come up with a single statement that all the world's religions agree unanimously about? Let's come up with a brand new definition of God. And I said, I've got a two-word definition, pure love. Now, when I say that in front of an audience, which I've done many times since that book was written, somebody in the back of the room will inevitably get up. Usually it's a guy who stands up and says, oh, Neil, 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 come on. We've been listening to you now for 25 minutes for you to tell us that the big revelation from the guy who talks to the divine is that God is love. Is that the best you can do? And I said, I say to the guy in the back of the room, hey, my friend, relax. I didn't say that. It's not what I said. I said, God is pure love. Now my friend will say, okay, what's the difference? Mm -hmm. And then I have to say, my friend, the difference is that pure love needs, expects, requires, and demands nothing in return. We can't even love the person on the pillow next to us that way, much less God. So dare we believe in a God who expects, demands, needs nothing from us for the love that God has given us? Or is that so theologically revolutionary that it would turn over the tables of virtually every religion on the face of the earth. But if it is, I wouldn't be the first person to walk through the temple and turn over the tables, mm -hmm. shouting, you hypocrites. Mm -hmm. Here's a question, Neil. If, if the definition of God is pure love, then a question arises, is God only pure love? Yes, are there the answer more is yes. attributes. Well, of course, there are many attributes under the heading of pure love. Ah, pure okay. love, pure love has many attributes, but you know, forgiveness, understanding, compassion, blah blah blah. But but pure love is the only overriding umbrella attribute of God. God is simply pure love. Let me segue to your new book. Um, you have. 
40 books or you had 39 before <laughs> the current book, presumably, they've sold millions and millions of copies. You have people all over the world. You've covered a vast amount of terrain in the uh, realm of spirituality. Why this current book? What was motivated you to do it? God talk, experiences of humanity's connections with a higher power. I never intended to write a book like that. Normally how authors find publishers is they write a book that they think a publisher might be interested in. If they have a literary agent, they give it to their literary agent, and the agent shops it around, if you please, and tries to find a publisher. If they don't have a literary agent, and most first-time authors do not, mm -hmm. then they wind up you know, calling publishers themselves and seeing if they do. But anyway, they try to find a publisher who wants to publish their, their, their book. Mm-hmm. In 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 the case of this particular book, it didn't happen that way. My phone rang. Yeah. And I picked up the phone and it was a publisher calling me. That never happened in my life. Yeah. I mean, a brand new publisher called me and said, would you be interested in writing a book for us? I said, uh, uh, on what topic? And they said, well, we... we we, we a lot of people have read your books, and the question we hear most often about your books is, how does one really have a conversation with God? Mm -hmm. Could you explain that? Could you offer maybe some steps or whatever the process is that by which people could have their own conversation with God? I said, I'd be very interested to do that kind of a book. No one's ever asked me that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I mean, actually been, shocked I, that no one had before. No, 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 no. I, I've been asked a question, but nobody ever asked me to write a book. Huh. Yeah, I'm sure. So, so <laughs> I said, okay. So I uh, wrote the book at their request, sent it in to them. They added some stories of other people who, because they put in, they put out an invitation on the internet. If you feel that you've had divine intervention in your life, send us your story. And they received hundreds of stories from people. And they picked out the seven best ones and they put them in the book to illustrate that it isn't just this one guy right. who's experiencing right. divine intervention. But here are some other people, a school teacher, one was a scientist, one was a medical doctor, etc., who were also having experiences of direct intervention by the divine in their life. And that made up the book. And so we, we put it out and we, we decided to call it God Talk. The title that I gave it, I said, they would say, what do, you, what, do you want, what do you want to call it? I said, let's call it God Talk, because it's about, it's about how we can talk to God, how God talks to us. And the third part of the book talks about maybe we should have not only conversation with God, but more conversations about God. Mm -hmm. Because our culture says, no, you don't talk about religion and politics and polite company. <laughs> I but have I a lot should... of impolite friends then. Yeah. <laughs> but I think we should talk about God much more than we do at the water cooler at the office, at the cocktail party in your home, or at the dinner party at someone else's house. Let's bring up the topic. Let's talk about God. Who is God? What does God want? What does God do when God doesn't get what she wants? And how do we use the power that God presumably has vested in all of us? So that's the conversation about God that I'm encouraging people to engage in. Very good. Um, listeners, we can continue those conversations on the podcast. Um, Neil, there's six steps in the new book that uh, are essentially, uh, it sounds like uh, advice to listeners who want to have a conversation with God, or at least open the, the door to the possibility um, and uh, if if we can, I'd like to look at, at them and some in particular that stood out for me. And the first of the of the six is to accept the possibility in the first place. Can you elaborate on, on that? Well, sure. We have to, first of all, accept that it's possible that a, a being called God exists, that there is a higher power. And then we have to accept that it's possible that God would be communicating with human beings and not just hearing our prayers, but responding in specific terms 
uh, two individuals. So we have to acknowledge that it's possible, which is not a small step to take, by the way. There are mm-hmm. millions of people who say, no, that's not, there is, there's no such thing as God. Atheists do not believe in God. Agnostics are not clear whether there is a God or not. And there are many people who would not admit to the possibility. Or if they do think there is a God, they would say it's utterly impossible for God to talk to us personally. So the first step is a big step. We have to admit that it's possible for this to happen. Along those lines, um, atheists who would not consider the possibility of something called God, um, others uh, who think, well, that's impossible, why would God talk to me? They, everybody has intuitions, everybody has insights, everybody has revelations. In your definition of communication with God, all those things are part of the language, essentially. So do, would people accept that as uh, or those kinds of um, understanding of what happens internally that some people call hearing from God? I can't tell you what some people would accept. You said, would people accept? I can't. I can't do they, way of... When you speak to them, or maybe you... Well, uh, I don't ask for a show of hands. But... <laughs> okay. But 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 they don't walk, they don't exactly turn around and walk out of the room, so I presume that you know, and and to be fair, many people in the audiences will be doing like this. They'll be shaking their head mm-hmm. and saying so, indicating in some way that they are not in total disagreement with what I'm saying. Good. Although there are some people who really do disagree when I'm standing in front of a room and I say, uh, "I've come here to tell you that God will never forgive you for anything." <laughs> They go out of their mind. People say, some, they say, you can see their eyes crossing. And that's one of those contradictory messages that I received in conversations with God. Explain. I will, I will never forgive you for anything. Because? I totally understand how it could happen that you would be, do, or say what you're being, doing, or saying. Because I see that you're acting, you know, the way a totally unevolved entity might act. And so God said to me, would you feel you needed to forgive a 16-month-old child for spilling the milk? Not only does grandpa not say to the 16-month-old child, I forgive you, sweetheart. Not only does he not forgive the child, he actually comforts the child Mm -hmm. in the moment of her dismay. Very good. is what God says I do to you. So God said to me, Neil, pick up a felt-tip pen and go and write this on your bathroom mirror. (laughs) So you see it every morning. Understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. Hmm. The second of the six steps is to embrace your worthiness. It sounds to me that one of the obstacles would be thinking you're unworthy of being communicated with by the divine. Is that what is the implication? Yes, of course. And our religions teach us that. So, you know, if you're the Pope, fair enough, or if you're the Archbishop of Canterbury, okay. Or if you're the head ulama or the chief rabbi, maybe you got the credentials. But God isn't going to talk directly to the first baseman for the New York Yankees. Or to, well, he did for Lou Gehrig. Yeah, he sure did. (laughs) But 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 you know, so 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 the second step is a big step to accept. I am worthy to be spoken directly to, not not in broad general sense, not through a book like the Bible or the or the or the Bhagavad Gita or the you know, but but directly. I am worthy to be spoken to directly by God. That's not a small step. Hmm. With no intermediaries. Precisely. Um, The third of the six steps that you uh, uh, put in your Willingness. Hmm? Willingness. The, the, The third step is willingness. Willingness, yes. 
and we being ready, be, you say. We must be willing. Ready, willing, and able. We must be willing. And and uh, our culture tells us that we shouldn't be willing. If, again, here we go again. We're repeating some earlier said statements, but most of the world's religions would call us a blasphemer mm. if we walked around saying, no, 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 this message came to me directly from God. We'd be accused of being a blasphemer or at the very least an apostate or a her- her- or committing heresy. So, so uh, our religions discourage us from saying that God is talking directly to me. So you have to be willing to get over the discouragement of our own human culture. And what is the ready part? Shakespeare said the readiness is all. What what do you mean by being ready? I think exactly what the word says. I'm ready to receive communications from God. Is preparation necessary? I don't think so. I think that many communicate in my own experience, many communications uh, come to us without any preparation whatsoever. I was certainly not re- not prepared mm. to receive the dialogue in the first conversation with God books. Nor was I prepared to hear God tell me, or give me a one word uh, message uh, at an intersection a few years ago. Stop. <laughs> because I was ready to go through this. I, I, I had stopped at the stop sign. It was 2.30 in the morning, coming home from a party. And I was ready to go out, you know, through the stop sign, having obeyed the sign. And all I heard was, stop. I slammed on the brakes for no apparent reason. And some teenage kid, he couldn't have been 17 years old, hmm. whizzed through that intersection from left to right in front of me. Must wow. have been going 85 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. Hmm. He came out of nowhere. He wasn't there. When I looked left and right, he was not there. He must have turned the corner and gunned it. Hmm. And I wouldn't be here to talk about it if I hadn't obeyed but was it was I prepared to get that message? No. Was mm-hmm. I prepared to get the message when I first looked at my wife? When she first walked into the room where I met her as a stranger, and the message was, This is it. This is the one. This is the one. Very and she got the same message. Uh, it was love at, love at first sight. Lovely. And a week later, a week later, we were married. You're blessed. Number five, or is it four? Um, Number four was wakefulness. Yes, which and, I interpreted and, as pay attention. Yes, exactly. We have to be. We have to be. Uh, we have to be awake, and don't let the message slide right by us. You see the sign on the billboard, and you ignore it. You drive right on by. Right, and and then even and then this the fifth step is acceptance, which means that even if you are reminded by your, your passenger in the car, hey, Neil, did you see that sign on the billboard? You were just asking me about that two weeks ago. There was a five-word sign on that billboard that answers your question. And I go, yeah, just just, just your imagination. You're making it all up. Or it's just a coincidence, just a coincidence. It's not really. So step five is acceptance, to be able to not reject hmm. what you're receiving as a message and calling it, you know, your imagination and when, even even when I said that to God, when I said to God, "How do I know this isn't my imagination?" Mm-hmm. God will. God said, "Where do you suppose Mozart's music came from? Where do you suppose Michelangelo's artistry came from? Where where, where do you suppose the half of the world's creative contributions come from? Your imagination. I will stop at nothing, including your imagination." What you described, oh, look, that billboard is answering the question you answered before and other examples. Uh, Jungian psychologists would call that synchronicity. Yeah. Is synchronicity one of the ways in your uh, definition of communication from God? It can be. Mm. I don't say that it is in every single case, but it certainly can be. And James Redfield wrote a whole book about that. Mm-hmm. The final of uh, step in the oh no yes the next one is uh, I was very happy to see and you used the term earlier in the conversation in the couple of minutes we have left perhaps you can focus on this 
and that is discernment. Because that answers a lot of questions about how do I know this is really the voice of the divine and not just something I'm making up or, you know, maybe I'm just, uh, I have a, a overactive imagination, et cetera, et cetera. Discernment, where does discernment enter into it? And why is it so important that it comes last in the six steps? Discernment comes into it when we, experience what some people could, could call it's a sign oh my god it's a sign mm -hmm. so and we we might even think initially that it is a sign whatever's happening if i reach into my pocket to get my car keys and a ten dollar bill happens to fall out of because i pulled it out of my and it fell on the ground it's a sign i'm supposed to take all my money and throw it on the ground <laughs> no let's <coughs> use some discernment so not everything is a sign or a message directly from the divine my little poem a sign from the divine is just fine but it's not always a sign from the divine right and so we just have to use you know use your head just you know is it a sign is it a sign from the divine or now when i got that message about my now wife, who is a total stranger to me. She's the one. I thought, oh boy. But events over the ensuing days and weeks made it clear to me. But I didn't grab her hand at that moment and say, let's go out and get married. Hello, my name is Neil. I just got a sign. Yeah. <laughs> You're supposed to marry me. Come with right. me into the bedroom. We can practice. <laughs> right. But um, so there's a follow-up to one, what one considers a, a message or a conversation. And that I was very happy that you said that because I've met so many people in my life who, you know, claim to have had a message from the divine and and sometimes it works out perfectly well, and sometimes it just gets them into trouble or you know waste their waste their time. And sometimes it's clearly wishful thinking, or some other kind of uh, noise. So thanks for that for emphasizing discernment. In the time we have left, and in a minute or two. What would you like our, our listeners to take away? What final message would you have for them? Your life is not about you. Your life has nothing to do with you. Your life is about everyone whose life you touch and the way in which you touch it. But when you realize that that is true, and when you live your life in that way, you encounter a higher truth. That in fact, in the highest sense, your life is about you for a wonderful reason. There's only one of us in the room. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Neil, for taking the time. Thank you for all the work you do and for the new book, as well as the uh, 39 previous books. And listeners, you can learn more about Neil at, of course, neildonaldwalsh.com. There'll be a link on the homepage when this is posted. Uh, thank you for listening. Please uh, subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends about it. Email me with suggestions. You can contact me through my website, philipgoldberg.com, and let me hear from you. Uh, and we will see you next time. Neil, thanks once again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Phil. I have to say, without wanting to sound like idle flattery, but you ask darn good questions. Okay. It's not, not often that I get the kinds of questions you ask. So thank you for those inquiries. I appreciate that very much. See you next time, listeners.
Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.